Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here at CSIS for Europe, Eurasia, and proudly for the Arctic region. Let me begin by saying Happy New Year. Uh, I am absolutely delighted that this morning's event is, is my kickoff for the first public event that, uh, events that my program's hosting here in 2016. So we have, I think, a great start to the new year. And I do want to confirm that we did pre-order this weather so you could be in an Arctic frame of mind. Um, I, I had to make a confession. Near the end of last year, as we, was, we were wrapping up our public events, <clears throat> excuse me, I was getting a few questions saying, hey, you haven't hosted an Arctic event for a while. When are you going to do that again? And I just want to confirm, you ask, we deliver. Not only are we hosting one spectacular event this morning, we're hosting a second Arctic event in the afternoon. And what me, uh, my staff and I are affectionately calling today the CSIS Arctic Palooza. So we are, are welcoming you to our Palooza. Uh, we at CSIS are absolutely thrilled to be in partnership once again with the Senate Arctic Caucus to hold a series of public discussions during the U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council on very critical Arctic issues that deserve a higher elevation uh, and, and public conversation. Many of you may recall our first discussion was last fall uh, and it focused on science and our international science uh, research agenda. As we all know, science is the cornerstone of making any sound and wise decisions related to the Arctic. But I'm particularly pleased that we are having today's, I think it's a groundbreaking discussion on national security issues in the Arctic. We are breaking a taboo today because for so many years, and I have personal experience with this, you could not utter the words security and Arctic in the same sentence, or you may have been criticized for attempting to militarize the Arctic. I actually think the opposite. We have to talk about shifts and changes in the national security environment, and they do touch on the Arctic. And of course, we have seen some significant, and I would argue negative changes to Russia's military posture, and Russia being one of the key Arctic actors, we need to understand these changes. But at the same time, there have been some very positive changes in creating new institutions like the Arctic Coast Guard Forum to address a range of very critical soft security challenges in the Arctic, such as search and rescue and oil spill response. And all of these changes really raise important questions about America's Arctic readiness. President Obama made a very significant announcement last August uh, in Alaska when he said that the United States would accelerate the acquisition of an icebreaker, or perhaps plural, icebreakers. This is a major investment uh, to improve U.S. access to both polar regions, but it is an expensive investment, which, which must be weighed carefully. So, needless to say, this is a timely and important discussion. So if we are calling this our Arctic Palooza, we have some Arctic rock stars with us who will offer their insights on the future of U.S. Uh, icebreaking operations as well as national security challenges, challenges in the Arctic. We are delighted, of course, to have uh, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Paul, Paul Zunkoft, with us. And later in the morning, we uh, welcome Admiral Mark Ferguson, Commander of U.S. Naval Forces in Europe and Commander of Allied Joint Forces Command in Naples. 
We have tremendous panelists uh, who I will introduce later in the program that have extraordinary experience that will help us understand these important implications. But before we begin, we cannot start our partnership uh, with the Senate Arctic Caucus without hearing from the two leaders of the Senate Arctic Caucus. And with us this morning, we have, of course, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Maine, uh, who will offer some remarks. Maine? Oh, Alaska! Alaska! See, I have fused Senator King and Senator Murkowski. Senator Angus King of Maine. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, our co-chair. So Senator Murkowski is going to offer some opening uh, remarks, and then we'll invite Senator King uh, forward for his remarks, and then we will get down to business and welcome Admiral Zudkoff for his remarks. So just very briefly, both senators need no introduction, but we are delighted that Senator Murkowski, the first Alaskan-born senator to serve uh, the state in the United States Senate, uh, in addition to her duties in co-leading the Arctic Caucus. Senator Murkowski is chairwoman of the Senate Energy and National Resources Committee and also serves on the Senate Appropriations Committee and serves as the chairman of the Interior and Environment Subcommittee. She serves on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee and is a senior member of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. Uh, brilliant uh, committee placements for discussions on so many critical issues facing the Arctic. So with that, Senator Murkowski, welcome, welcome to all. Welcome to Arctic Palooza. Thank you. Heather, thank you. you the slip about Maine is okay. As, as Senator King and I have said multiple times, we are your bookends. On both ends of the country, from Maine to Alaska, uh, we are continuing to uh, remind the nation and the world that we are an Arctic nation. And it is good to be in an Arctic frame of mind. I kind of like that. Uh, the Arctic Palooza, I'm going to be finishing off my week in Seattle at the Arctic uh, Encounter Symposium. I know that several of you in this room will also be with us at that, so keeping with the Arctic frame of mind, I think, is a good thing for us all. Icebreakers, icebreakers and why we need them. Uh, for those of us that are in the high north, it seems like such an incredible question. Why are we even having this discussion? Why don't we have more? What has happened? Where is the urgency? Because for us, it is, it is an integral piece of infrastructure when you are the Arctic. So the discussion that we're having today as we push on this issue as we remind people of the imperative, is one that I hope is not just contained to those of us with interest in the Arctic here in this room, that that interest grows and the understanding as to the need and to the, as to the imperative grows. You mentioned, Heather, the, the President's announcement in September when he was up in the state, uh, the intention to accelerate replacement of the heavy 
icebreaker, the polar star, accelerate that to 2020. It was welcome news to us. It's something that I have been arguing, many of my colleagues have been arguing for, for some period of time. And an announcement is good, but what you really need is the money to go behind the announcement. We need to make sure that it's more than just words. I have urged the President, I have urged the Office of Management and Budget to ensure that this 2017 budget request has the adequate funding for new heavy icebreakers, uh, I'm putting it plural, to meet our, our nation's polar region demands. And we need to be clear on this. This has to be in addition to the current Coast Guard acquisition programs. We can't be borrowing or stealing from the Coast Guard acquisition account. It is imperative that the Coast Guard's current acquisition programs be maintained. They need to continue to upgrade their aging fleet with the new national security cutters, with the offshore patrol cutters, and the fast response cutters. I don't think Admiral Zunkoff wants to lose the momentum that we have for these very, very needed vessels within, within all of our, our, our Coast Guard world. We need the new heavy icebreakers alongside these vehicles, not in place of, but in, alongside these vehicle, vessels to properly patrol our waters and protect our national interests around the world. Polar Star, um, doing good work. Got a few years left in, in her useful life here, but, but she is continued, uh, continuing to conduct the annual McMurdo uh, breakout in Antarctica. And what that leaves us with is the Healy. And the Healy is a good vessel. She is capable, but she is a, a medium icebreaker, and she's all we have to protect our interests in the Arctic. And, and while she is powerful, she does not have the ability to provide year-round access to the Arctic. The Russians have this capability. Um, just last month, we saw one of their nuclear icebreakers, the, the Vegash, complete a transit of the northern sea route in seven and a half days. Now, I was just up in Nome a couple days ago. Uh, it's wintertime in Nome, and you can't tell the land from the ice because this is that time of year. Uh, the ice isn't as thick as the people in Nome would like, but it does cause you to question. If we had another situation, if we had another fuel crisis like we had in, in 2012, would the Healy be able to make the transit during the winter by herself? Uh, and I, I, I hope that we don't ever have to answer this question because I'm not sure that we would like what the answer would be. As we struggle to add one additional heavy icebreaker to our fleet, I, I can't help but look to Russia with a little bit uh, of envy here. They're in the process now of constructing 14 new icebreakers of, of various designs and use. There was a, there was a, a, a report that I read uh, just a little bit ago. This is a plan by Rosatom 
to build a vessel for transpolar shipment that can break through four meter thick ice at three knots and open 50 meter wide lanes. Now you compare that to Polar Star's 25 meter beam, her ability to break through 1.8 meters of ice at three knots. There's a, there's a really interesting picture of, of this vessel, the concept picture, I guess, and it looks like something out of, of Paul Allen's super yacht, the octopus. It's, it is really kind of space agey, um, but it, it's just a reminder to us. We've got some catching up to do. We have, we have an imperative here. As a nation, we must decide that we can't wait any longer for these valuable strategic assets and therefore must ensure the proper resources are allocated to construct new heavy icebreakers. So the president needs to include in his budget the necessary robust funding to acquire a billion dollar new heavy icebreaker by 2020. And as I said earlier, this needs to be in addition to the current Coast Guard acquisition plans. We all know around here, a billion dollars is a lot of money. It's a lot of money any way you slice it. But our national priorities are never cheap. Our national priorities are never cheap. Comparatively, the Coast Guard's acquisition budget for cutters of just over a billion dollars is tiny when you compare it to the $18 billion Navy shipbuilding and, and conversion account. And I'm not suggesting here, I've got Senator Warner, former uh, colleague of, of mine, but also um, the Secretary of the Navy. I'm not suggesting that the Navy doesn't need the money as well, but rather that the Coast Guard is as integral to our national fleet and should be given the same type of funding priority as we see with the Navy's new warships. Now, we've had a lot of discussion in my office. I have challenged my folks. Like, it's one thing to talk about the need for the icebreakers. We know we need them, but how are we gonna pay for them? And as was, was mentioned, I'm on the Appropriations Committee, I'm on the Defense uh, Subcommittee, I'm on Homeland Security Subcommittee. I'm trying to figure out how how we make this happen. And so we finally figured it out. Last night, I bought a Powerball ticket. <laughs> Got a Powerball ticket here, spent $2. So I don't do a lot of Powerball, but I'm told that it, if, if this is it, this is $1.5 billion. Now, heck of a deal. So here's, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm happy to work on, on a law that requires the, the taxes, almost $400 million in federal taxes from this winning Powerball. We skip going to the Treasury. We dedicate it directly to icebreakers. There's $400 million right there as of tonight. I guess they're gonna make this drawing tonight. So we could be $400 million ahead, Admiral. Um, I'm, willing, I'm willing to work that. I've also suggested that if, if it's not me that wins, if somebody else has this winning, winning uh, ticket here, 
any bit that they want to give towards the polar icebreaker, I suggest we give them naming rights. <laughs> so we're working it. We're trying to figure out, I mean, good heavens, we've got, we've got to make this an imperative. And we're joking about it, but I think we're joking about it a little bit nervously because we know that it is hard to find the, the adequate resources. But whether, whether and how we, 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 we work this, whether it is increasing the Coast Guard's acquisition budget, funding through the Navy's shipbuilding account, a combination of both, a leasing model, whatever the, the dynamic might be, know that I'm going to be working on the Appropriations Committee, again through my subcommittees, to figure out how we make this icebreakers, how we make it a priority. What we need is the administration to, to really put the money behind the announcement that was made in, in September and make construction of, of new heavy icebreakers a true national priority. So thank you for the pressure that you will continue to apply. Uh, again, you heard it here first, $400 million to an icebreaker uh, if we just want to use my plan to bypass the Treasury with the taxes. Whoever is successful will give you the naming rights. Just put a little in the pot. So with that, I, I will turn to my, my friend and my colleague uh, from Maine who has been a fabulous voice on Arctic issues uh, as we have advanced the Arctic Caucus within the Senate. It's, a, it's indeed a pleasure to be working with him. It's also a pleasure to be sitting here this morning with my friend and former colleague, Senator Warner from Virginia. So thank you, Heather, for the opportunity to be with you. Senator Murkowski, you've inspired me. I may have to go out and get a Powerball ticket just to meet uh, your pledge. Well, if I can take my foot out of my mouth and properly introduce Senator Angus King of Maine, uh, the first independent United States senator uh, representing the great state of Maine. I think, again, like Senator Murkowski, Senator King sits on some really crucial committees the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Intelligence Committee, Energy and Natural Resources, Budget and Rules. So I think if we're going to get that uh, tax variety, Senator King, I think you have some power there to rewrite those budget rules. But uh, again, the, the fact that we are an Arctic nation because of Alaska, but that we know our East Coast has huge Arctic equities as well, we're so grateful that Senator King could be with us today. And again, if you were with us uh, last fall, Senator King, had a top 10 Letterman-style list for the Arctic that was fantastic. So I'm sure we're in for great comments as well. Senator King of Maine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, when I was a little boy, my mother gave me three rules for public speaking. Stand up straight, look your audience in the eye, and never follow Barack Obama. That was, those were the rules. Uh, but here we are this morning. Uh, it's a little intimidating. Uh, this is a very common uh, situation for a senator. Senator Warner, I'm sure, knows this, and Senator Mikowski. Quite often, 
as we are today, we're invited to speak to an audience where 100% of the members of the audience know more about the subject matter than we do. It's a, a very awkward position, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And when I, uh, I have a, an interesting perspective on the Senate because I worked as a staff member at the Senate in the 70s. And in fact, was sworn in as a United States Senator 40 years to the day from the day I entered Senate service in the, uh, for the, in the staff of the uh, Labor and Public Welfare Committee in January of 1973. As part of my job for the committee, I, would be, I was called upon to set up hearings. And we were gonna have a hearing on an issue, I can't remember what it was, but I called OMB and said, we need a witness from the administration for this hearing. A fellow called me back and he said, well, we're sending you the deputy undersecretary such and so of, of the department. And I said, well, I don't really know what the titles all mean. Tell me who this guy is. And the fellow's answer is going to be the title. If I ever write a book about Washington, this will be the title. The guy, I'm not making this up. The guy said, he's at the highest level where they still know anything. <laughs> And I realize now I'm above that level. Uh, uh, I want to uh, expand upon uh, Senator Mikowski's uh, remarks and, and talk a little bit about a larger, uh, a larger context. Uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, the Arctic was not much talked about uh, for several reasons. The Cold War was coming to an end. So we perceived a lessening of tensions with the then Soviet Union and later Russia. The ice was there in great quantities and the world appeared stable. Uh, we went from a bipolar world to a, almost a unipolar world for a time. Today, that world has totally changed uh, in, in some very fundamental ways. Number one, competition with Russia is now back uh, back on the, on the uh, strategic uh, calculus. Uh, I was in Iceland last fall, and at the end of the Cold War, we uh, got, got rid of, left the Keflavik air, air Base. Today, it's one of the most strategic places in the world. Uh, and it just, I think it goes to show that you need to be careful about making infrastructure kinds of decisions based upon current strategic realities because those realities uh, can change. Uh, so new competition with Russia. Of course, the other reality that in part brings us here is the reduction of the ice. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact that this body of water is now accessible and becoming more so is a, a huge uh, geopolitical change. I've analogized it to the discovery of the Mediterranean Sea. It's as if a new ocean has been discovered. And with all of that, uh, all that implies, that's an enormous new uh, reality uh, that implies security interests, energy interests, transportation interests, tourism, every, every conceivable, I mean, just it's, a, it's a, think of, you know, oh, well, there's this, there's this big body of water here with Italy and Greece and North Africa. I mean, this is a, this is a very important change. The third uh, new reality is a salutary one, which is we have international institutions available to us uh, 
to ameliorate and mitigate and negotiate some of the issues arising from uh, this new reality of competition with, with Russia and with the uh, uh, discovery or the, the opening up of this facility, like the Arctic Council. Now, we know that the Arctic Council is explicitly precluded from dealing with national security issues, but it is, it, it, it is at least available as an international body to help us negotiate the pathway toward a, a, a peaceful and stable uh, development of this, uh, of this region. Uh, you know, we could have saved a thousand years of war if there had been a council to manage the Mediterranean uh, at the time that uh, the, the nation states uh, came into existence. And then the fourth reality that's changed since uh, uh, the end of the Cold War is globalization and the enormous expansion of, of trade, and particularly seaboard trade. Uh, I, I don't have the figures uh, uh, directly, but you all know that the, the growth of, of seaborne trade uh, is just gigantic. And of course, the reality is that a pathway through uh, the Arctic is uh, significantly shorter, significantly less expensive uh, than any other uh, mode of transportation, including seaborne trade through uh, through the canal if you're going from Asia to the east coast of the United States or to uh, Europe. So th those, are the, those are the realities. New competition, ice out, Arctic Council, and globalization. So what do we do? What do we do as a result of these new realities? What is our reaction? Some are very specific, some are not so. The first thing we do is ratify the Law of the Sea Treaty. It is ridiculous that we are standing aside from an international process that will enable us to participate in the resolution of disputes such as territorial disputes uh, in the Arctic Ocean. I have friends in the Senate who feel that any kind of international treaty is an abrogation of sovereignty and a loss of, of, of our uh, power, of our uh, freedom to, to act and act in, in our sovereign way. I think they misperceive what a treaty is. One of the best examples, I think, is uh, the homely stoplight, okay? The stoplight, you don't think about this, but when you drive up and there's a red light and you stop, that's, an, that's a loss of sovereignty. You've given up the freedom to barrel through that intersection. That is an impingement on your personal rights. But it, by abiding by that law, it allows you to proceed through that intersection without getting killed. Do you see what I mean? You're gaining freedom to navigate without fear of being crashed into by giving up some freedom. And by, by giving up some unilateral rights under the law of the sea, we are gaining the right to have an adjudication of our claims. We're the ones that are standing on the side. Russia's already getting their adjudication of their claims on the northern route, are now, it's now happening, and we're outside of that and have no forum upon which to establish our rights. That's ridiculous. And this idea that 
that every treaty is an abrogation of sovereignty doesn't realize that a treaty is also a gaining of influence and power. So that's number one. Uh, let's try to move forward with that. I think we need to use the council for all it's worth in terms of research, in terms of, of native peoples, of, of all the uh, influence and the, the role that the Arctic Council can play, particularly during the next year and a half of American leadership of the council. Supporting research is crucial. When I was here last year, that was the focus of my remarks. Uh, Believe it or not, those of us in a position to make policy do, in fact, like data. Uh, we like information, and we can't make good decisions uh, without, uh, uh, without good, uh, good information. And by the way, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, we really need good science in order to make the decisions that uh, will be to the benefit of, uh, of the entire region. So supporting research and data uh, is important. We have to ensure that security needs are met. Uh, we have to ensure uh, that we have the communications uh, assets, the communications resources. We have to ensure that we're able to have uh, the, the navigation uh, ability in that in that region. We need, I believe, forward operating stations uh, on the North Slope, the Bering Strait. Uh, we all know that Russia is uh, very actively uh, developing uh, those resources. And it's interesting to me that they're building, how many, you said seven icebreakers or? 14 icebreakers. They're flat broke. Their, their economy is not anywhere near as, as strong as ours, and yet they've decided this is an important national priority. Uh, and so uh, we need to think about the security implications uh, of, of this region of the world where we are, in fact, in the closest physical proximity uh, to, uh, I wouldn't say an enemy, I wouldn't say an adversary, I would say a rival. Uh, and I think it's prudent uh, to be sure that we have the sufficient uh, uh, assets to ensure that the security of this country are met. Then finally, uh, my wife uh, tells me that I say finally too much, it gets people's hopes up. <laughs> uh, but uh, finally, on infrastructure, uh, as I mentioned, communications, forward operating stations, icebreakers. And Senator Murkowski brilliantly outlined that uh, subject, so I don't really need to, to uh, 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 repeat what she said. There, there are a couple of things, though, that I think uh, we need to think about. One is that the current, uh, that the polar star is nearing its useful life, uh, and it's already been extended. Uh, but let's say that uh, we. Uh, let a contract in the next couple of years for design, then we have construction, the ship uh, eight, uh, uh, 2020, uh, but it's not ready to go into service until 2024, 2025. There's potentially a five or six year gap there with no ice breaking capacity. Do, do, do you see what I mean? If the, if the old one goes out of service, uh, if the Polar Star is out of service at the end of its useful life and isn't practical to extend, and we haven't yet got the new one in, in, 
in, in, uh, in service, we've got a period where there's no ice breaking capacity whatsoever. It reminds me of when I was, took driver's ed, and remember they used to teach you how far your headlights projected, and it's like 180 yards, and if there's, if there's a wall at 181 yards and your braking time is 182 yards, you're gonna hit that wall. And we've gotta think about this, what I call the icebreaker gap, which is a, a period where we may end up with no icebreaking capacity whatsoever. Senator Mikowski is absolutely right. I love the president's speech when he was in Alaska, when he uttered the word icebreaker, that was great. But uh, as I learned a long time ago, budgets are policy. Budgets are policy. So the real test will be what's in the 2017 budget, which will be submitted to the Congress just uh, in, in uh, about a month. That's a, that's a crucial step. If there's no money there, additional money, I'd love your point, it's gotta be additional money. It can't be carving out of the existing acquisition uh, uh, budget. Uh, then we know that we're seriously embarked on a, a process that will uh, get us where we need to be. Uh, the other uh, suggestion I have is, uh, and I think the Admiral is going to address this, is to finalize the requirements. To, to be sure that we've got all the requirements from the scientific community, the military community, the, the, the uh, Coast Guard, that everybody knows what this ship needs to look like, so we finalize that. And then I propose that we allocate funds this year for a competitive design contract. Because one of the problems, as I see it, is that other than Senator Mikowski and I and other people who are interested in the Arctic generally, there's not a constituency for this ship. I want some, I want the American in, uh, shipbuilding uh, community excited about a ship that they're gonna be able to compete and build because then we've got a different constituency that will help us to move this uh, idea from an idea and a concept uh, to a reality. Uh, so I think the way to break that kind of catch-22 is to let a design contract with some significant funds that will be bid on a competitive basis, and then suddenly you've got uh, an industrial base that's, that's interested in supporting the forward movement of this, uh, of this uh, uh, process. So I, I think we're, uh, we've, uh, Lisa, I think we're way ahead of where we were two years ago. We're, we're now, if we'll see what this budget says, but getting the president up to Alaska, thank you for that, uh, and, and getting that commitment, uh, I think gives us a, a, a real path forward on this issue. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll end by just saying, uh, I think uh, we are in a period of dramatic change. And uh, as the president said last night, change is, uh, uh, is both a challenge and an opportunity. And I can't resist because the president alluded to President Lincoln last night. Uh, and he talked about President Lincoln's words on change. And I wanna give you the whole quote. Lincoln went to Congress in De on December 2nd, 1862 to talk about the magnitude of the Civil War. And the point he was making was that Congress was treating, treating the war and acting as if this was kind of politics as usual. And Lincoln was trying to get them 
to understand that this is different, that this is a qualitatively different situation. And in the context of that speech, he uttered the phrase that the president noted last night uh, about how to deal with change. And I think it's the most profound observation about this factor in our lives, this constant factor in our lives, ever, uh, ever uttered by an American leader. Here's what President Lincoln said. The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and therefore we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. That's what we have to do. We have to think in new and different ways. We have to disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. Thank you. Senator King, thank you so much, uh, particularly that, that last quote. Uh, but as well, I will never look at a stoplight the same way ever again. So never thought sovereignty of a stoplight. Thank you so much. You both have set the tone perfectly for the discussion we are, are going to begin today. And I could not think of a better person to begin this conversation than the, co the 25th Commandant of the US Coast Guard, Admiral Paul Zukunft. Um, accepting this assignment of May 2014, so in the job, ready to go, prior to serving as Commandant, uh, if I may, Admiral Z, uh, uh, served as commander of the Coast Guard Pacific Area, where he was an operational commander for all U.S. Coast Guard missions, encompassing more than 74 million square miles. That's a good warm-up for the expansiveness of the Arctic. In 2010, Admiral Z served as the federal on-scene coordinator for the De Deepwater Horizon spill. Uh, he directed more than 47,000 responders, 6,500 vessels, 120 aircraft during the largest oil spill in U.S. history. So uh, we, good warm-up for your uh, present assignment. On a personal note, I have uh, had an opportunity to watch the changes that Admiral Z has put forward in the Coast Guard. He's at the forefront of looking at those challenges that will shape the Coast Guard's response, whether that's on cyber security issues, but specifically on the Arctic. Taking that leadership role, it is not easy, but as we know, the Coast Guard is America's front line in the Coast Guard. And I, for one, have great confidence that we have great leadership in that regard. And again, we're so delighted, Admiral, that you could make time to be with us and share your thoughts on this very important year for the Coast Guard. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, Heather. And first of all, I want to thank the Arctic Caucus. Uh, I was on the Hill yesterday, met with a number of members, uh, bipartisan, uh, talking about our 2016 budget across our full spectrum of missions. And most of that time was consumed about talking about the Arctic and talking about icebreakers. Uh, we're honored that we have Senator Warner here. And to steal from uh, Senator King, uh, here is a subject matter expert at the highest levels 
that still was a subject matter expert, that understood Alfred Mahan, that understood the reason why we have powerful nations, the reason why we are a maritime nation first and foremost. And yes, as President Obama said last night, that we are indeed the world's most powerful nation in the world. But we're a maritime nation first and foremost. And yes, we are an Arctic nation. So what an appropriate opportunity uh, to focus on Arctic. And again, Heather, thank you for illuminating the Arctic because there's a lot going around in the world. I get those same intelligence briefs every day. Um, and oftentimes, the Arctic does not come up. Um, but it's not just the Arctic. Uh, there's also the Antarctic. And today, the Coast Guard Cutter Polar Star is in McMurdo. Uh, they broke through over eight feet of ice. Uh, now, that ship can break ice thicker than the floor to the ceiling in this room. Uh, and in fact, it is the only non-nuclear icebreaker in the world that can make that statement. But it's the only one icebreaker that we have. Uh, so what's critical about Antarctica? Uh, I can't share in this room, but we have national strategic infrastructure in the Antarctic. Uh, and we need to reprovision these stations, or else we're going to lose an element of our strategic awareness if we're not able to do so. And would you lease an icebreaker from, say, a country such as Russia in order for us to have this strategic awareness against a potential adversary? And the answer is probably not, and even with sanctions aside, if this is critical to our nation's strategic awareness and objectives as well. What do I lose sleep over? Uh, I lose sleep over when Polar Star had a main console casualty uh, three weeks ago on their way down there. Uh, we had engineers, met them in Australia, and they're on their way again. Uh, but last year, the Polar Star, on their way back from the break-in, uh, they came to the rescue of a New Zealand trawler. Uh, the wind shifted, they were beset in ice, uh, this New Zealand trawler, that is, and their propellers had sheared, trying to steam their way out of this ice ridge. Uh, and the Polar Star was able to break them free, and this ship was not designed to winter over in the Antarctic domain. The year before that, we pulled Polar Star out of Darwin. Uh, the crew was in for a day of rest, and they didn't get that either. Uh, we had two ships. One was the Academic Shikulski. It's a Russian research vessel, uh, now beset in ice. And then the Shui Long, a medium icebreaker from China, came to their rescue, and now they're beset in ice. It was the perfect storm. Russia, China, and the United States comes to the rescue. Uh, the wind shifted just at the last minute, but we did receive through diplomatic channels, both from Russia, both from China, thanking the United States for being the good Samaritans to come to their rescue. Um, but we're going to focus a little bit on the Arctic. And I've got, I can't follow the eloquent speakers that came before me, so I've got to replace that with a couple of pictures. Um, so I'll put up the first slide, if you will. And when I came into this job, and you heard from the State of the Union last night as well, we need to think beyond the tyranny of the present. Uh, when I came into this job, I said strategy has got to drive our budget, but we need to think beyond the four-year term of a commandant. Uh, we have literally been talking about Arctic and icebreakers from A to Z, and now you've got a commandant whose last name begins with Z. Uh, we do have an Arctic strategy. Uh, our nation has a strategy for the Arctic region. So you don't want to write a strategy. In this town, it's often said uh, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a strategy. 
Uh, but this is one that matters. We are an Arctic nation, but if you look to the right of that cover page of our Arctic strategy, what you see in those varying colors are the overlaps of claims in the Arctic region among the eight Arctic Council nations that all say these are our sovereign waters. Uh, it's good to know that we don't have claims like that anywhere else in the world, things like nine dashed lines and so forth. Uh, no, I'm, I, I, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, there is overlap taking place. And then if you look to the right of that and you see some of that pink in there, uh, this is what's known as our extended continental shelf. Uh, that wedge, that triangular piece that you see up there, those are waters that have been mapped by the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Now up in there, there is also called what's the Healy Seamount. Uh, they discovered a seamount. Uh, much of this has been ice covered, very little of that is charted. Fortunately, they discovered the seamount with the side scan sonar and not with their hull, uh, but there's a mountain up there uh, that didn't quite raise to the surface of the ocean. But the important piece is these are technically sovereign waters of the United States. Uh, where you see open ocean to the south of that triangle, that is our traditional 200-mile economic exclusive zone. But as you go north of that, an area more than twice the size of the state of California, and on that seafloor are sovereign rights of the United States, where about 13% of the world's crude oil, over a third of the world's natural gas, and over a trillion dollars of minerals exist on that seafloor. Maybe technology doesn't exist today to exploit that. The price of oil today just went below $30 per barrel. Is it gonna be like that for the next 40 years? As I'm thinking beyond four years, I'm thinking 10, 20, 30, 40. And obviously, as we heard, things will change and we need to be, make sure that we're ready to embrace that change as well. On the lower left, uh, that is a picture of the Crystal Serenity. Uh, this summer, between August and September, uh, she will transit through the Bering Strait. Uh, she'll then transit through the Northwest Passage. She'll make several port visits in Canada. She'll stop in Nome before she does, and then eventually she'll return to port in New York City. Uh, a thousand passengers on this particular ship, another crew of over 600, so you've got 1,700 people going through semi-charted waters, waters that are charted about 95% are not charted to 21st century standards. Uh, what really brought this to my attention is last summer, I was on the Icelandic Coast Guard vessel Thor. And that is a name that just makes you want to beat your chest, the Thor. <laughs> and so when I talked to the captain, first of all, he's a little bit more mature than I am. And I asked, well, how many years of sea duty do you have? He's got 58 years of sea duty and all of those plying the Arctic waters. And so I said, well, can I see your charts? And we roll out this paper chart, and the datum is from 1915, when Ernest Shackleton was beset on the endurance, but the charts go back to 1915. And when he's up there and they're patrolling, uh, they send a boat out in front of them with a side scan sonar, and they move along at about five knots, and they're doing charting as they move. And we talked about data. And we talked about sharing this information, but we had 200,000 passengers on cruise ships in these very same waters where the Thor was operating last year. And they're moving at speeds that would rival Costa Concordia, uh, hoping that there is no rocky bottom beneath them, but our ability to rescue up there, limited uh, if non-existent. Um, but when I look at the Crystal Serenity, 
Uh, if you want to buy a ticket, uh, it's $21,500, but if you're going by yourself, you've got to buy two. So uh, it's sold out. Every stateroom is filled. This is going to be the experience of a lifetime. I've reached out to the cruise ship industry, and I said, I hope none of you are thinking about doing this. And they said, are you kidding me? At those prices and those earnings? Absolutely. And so when you talk about risk, risk is really, it's a fundamental of repetitions, exposure. And the more repetitions you do, the more times you run that red light, the better the likelihood is you're going to hit something or something will hit you. And what is our ability to do a mass rescue in the high latitudes, limited at very best? Um, and on the bottom right, uh, that is uh, from, that is the, the Kulik, uh, as you, you know, may remember back in 2012, Shell's venture, uh, which they have now pulled back from. Uh, a huge down payment, uh, and I don't know whether price per barrel of oil, but I'm sure at $30 per barrel, uh, this is not a lucrative venture to be in right now, but we did see a tremendous increase in human activity up in the Arctic, over 300%. Um, in an area, the most pristine environment in the world. I've been up there for the last five years counting now. Uh, and I usually go up to Barrow, Alaska. If you really want to know what's going on when it comes to climate change, talk to the people, the generations who have lived up there for years on end. Um, and last summer, just before we arrived, they had a storm. Now normally, during that time of the year, there's still an ice field that acts as a breakwater. Uh, that prevents any coastal erosion. Well, the nearest sea ice was over 200 miles north of Barrow when the storm hit. And so in the middle of a storm, it was actually a hurricane. The winds were over 90 knots, and they're out there with earth-moving equipment pushing silt uh, so we didn't have seawater contamination uh, inundate the only freshwater reservoir in Barrow, Alaska. Uh, it was nearly a life-changing event up on the North Slope, uh, but that is happening. Uh, as we look at changes in the Arctic uh, and changes in the world around us. Uh, but also change at a point in time where people look to the United States as being that global leader, dating back to Alfred Mahan. Uh, but where are we in the Arctic? Uh, we're, we're there, we're there seasonally, but we're not there in the numbers of some of the other Arctic nations, and obviously Russia in particular. We'll, we'll go to the next picture that we have here. Uh, what you're looking at there, that is our inventory of icebreakers in the United States. Uh, and so if you look at an icebreaker, look at these in the same way you would our nuclear trident, an SSBN. We've got a lot more SSBNs. I can't say the number, but we get more than that. Um, I'm great friends with uh, Admiral John Richardson. Uh, we, uh, with his predecessor, John Greenert, we signed out the cooperative strategy for the 21st century. Uh, now, you will not see, and you should not see, the Navy making it their number one imperative of we need to invest in the Arctic. What the Navy needs to do and what they need to find is the funding to recapitalize our SSBN fleet, a key element of our nuclear trident. Uh, rough order of magnitude, an SSBN today will probably cost in the neighborhood of about $8 billion for one. Uh, but it's not how much it costs, it's the investment in the military industrial complex? Do we have the wherewithal to build high technology, stealthy platforms that can serve as our nuclear trident? We get that in the Navy. We also need to get that in the Arctic. And what we need to look at is we need to invest in that industrial complex to say we have the ability to build these ships. Now I listened very closely and I played the tape back multiple times and President Obama, there is an S 
at the end of icebreakers. Um, but really, uh, there are economies of scale that come with that. Uh, but we do see in the pictures is last year, we actually had the Coast Guard Cutter Healy, a medium icebreaker on the North Pole. If you look very closely where the white is in the stripe, that is the North Pole. It's, there's a real North Pole there. We didn't find Santa Claus. Uh, but no, they made it up there. Uh, but we used technology. Uh, we used overhead imagery, but it's limited up there. Uh, and so we need to look at what is our overhead imagery when we're thinking security up in the Arctic. When I say we, I say we, the United States. We were able to use unmanned aerial vehicles uh, to fly ahead. We didn't have a helicopter on the Healy at the time. Um, but we used that technology to fly ahead and look for leads in the ice so they can thread their way up there and actually get up to the North Pole. Uh, and this wasn't a sovereign conquest of the North Pole. This was in support of a scientific mission in support of the National Science Foundation. Uh, the picture below you, that was taken several years ago. Uh, that was a pretty heavy ice year when we had two heavy icebreakers that were operational. Polar Star in the foreground, that's Polar Sea in the background, and that's the ice pier at McMurdo Station. Uh, that year, there was over 75 miles of ice, some of it up to 15 to 18 feet thick, uh, which, again, only those ships can break in. Uh, this year, it was about eight, eight feet thick, um, and there again, that would take Healy out of the equation uh, if we had to rely on Healy to do this ice-breaking mission in the Antarctica. Uh, next slide. So this is one, uh, well, that's a good slide, too. I really like that one. But I, I really like the one with the ships on it instead. Uh, we'll come back to that one. Yeah, really quick with the trigger there. There we are. Okay. So, yeah, so us and them. So what you're looking at is, is Russia on the left, the United States on the right, and uh, our, our notional inventory of icebreakers right now. Uh, on the U.S. side, the one to the far right, that's a notional icebreaker. Uh, to follow up on what Senator King said, uh, in our 2016 acquisition, there is a line item. It's not a big one, uh, but it's enough for me to decide what, I'm, what am I going to do about investing in icebreakers. We're hiring the acquisition staff to do that in hopes that we will have an appropriation in 2017 uh, which buys me a year, a year and a half at minimum, to bring in the workforce to design and then acquire a polar icebreaker, or to lease one, or if we need to restore an icebreaker that's currently laid up, the Polar Sea. Uh, the Polar Sea is depicted in this particular slide. Uh, she is in a shipyard right now. We'll do a material assessment on that to determine whether we bring it back to life or whether we put it in escrow and we use it as a spare parts bin to keep Polar Star get back to that gap that Senator King talked about to make sure we close that gap if we're going to bring a new icebreaker in that we don't find ourselves in that donut hole where we have no heavy icebreaking capability whatsoever. Uh, we just completed uh, an operational requirement document uh, among all of the stakeholders that have equities in the Arctic. Uh, that includes Coast Guard, that includes Navy and DOD, it includes Department of Interior, Department of Commerce, NOAA, National Science Foundation, Arctic Council, a lot of people have a stake in the Arctic. And this was to define the requirements. This was not to go around with that Powerball lottery ticket sales pitch to say, you know, I want you to buy in as well. I want to make sure I have stable requirements that I can then turn to industry and say, this is what we need. And we're not going to change our mind halfway into this process. Uh, and then realize, oh, we forgot to add on this, this, and this. Now, if you're in the shipbuilding business, and some of you out there are, you know that as soon as 
requirements change, well, then cost changes as well. Uh, today at noon, we will post on FedBizOps uh, a notional acquisition timeline and the requirements for a polar icebreaker. We're pushing it out to industry. So we're giving everybody a head start on this. So even though we don't have an acquisition, uh, we do not have an appropriation for an icebreaker, I am front-loading everything I can do possible to meet the President's mandate of we need to accelerate the build-out of these strategic platforms. And yes, they truly are strategic. Uh, we heard 14 icebreakers being built by Russia. But we'll go to the next slide real quick, because I really want to get to some question and answer. We heard that the Arctic Council, it really is about safety, it really is about environment, it really is about stewardship, uh, about the indigenous tribes that, that exist in the Arctic domain. Uh, we have created an Arctic Coast Guard form. Uh, we're taking advantage of the fact that the United States chairs the Arctic Council, led by my predecessor, Admiral Papp, uh, who leads our U.S. delegation while we chair the Arctic Council for the next two years. Uh, I work closely with State Department, and here we are signing a general statement uh, that lays out terms of reference how the Arctic Council nation, Coast Guards, are going to operate in a combined and collaborative fashion. And it begins by we all sit at the table together. What's especially noteworthy as I'm sitting on the far right, the person two to my left is my counterpart, the four-star general from Russia, the principal. Not a proxy, but the principal. This is one area, and I'm the only service chief that has the luxury where I can have a strategic dialogue with my Russian counterpart. We put Ukraine, we put Crimea, we put Syria aside to focus on the Arctic. We do not want the Arctic to be the next military front. But if we stay entrenched in our isolated mindsets, that is exactly what we will have. Uh, we do send ships up there with advanced capability in the ice-free season. We know that there was a significant military exercise that played out. It was a combined exercise between China and Russia. A little saber rattling, if you will, to say we can do this and we know that you can't. They and us, the United States, because quite honestly, we do not have the presence up there. We don't have that white fleet that Teddy Roosevelt leaned upon if we have to ever have to do big stick diplomacy and say, yes, don't forget, most powerful nation, Arctic nation, and we are there as well. But the good news is we're going to move out with a Coast Guard approach to the Arctic. And if you look at what plays out in the East and South China Seas right now, I was actually in Hanoi and uh, Da Nang uh, not that long ago. And that's actually, I didn't realize it, it's the East Vietnamese Sea. Um, and then I was in the Philippines, and it's the West Philippine Sea. Uh, but then it depends who you talk to. Uh, but when you look at it on a day-to-day -day basis of what is the governance in the East and South China Sea, the lead maritime services are Coast Guards. Um, that provides some diplomatic maneuvering room that big navies do not. Uh, big navies lead to immediate escalation, and now you're talking about armed conflict. Um, and so we're using that very same approach as we look at the Arctic. We realize that we have differences that need to be settled. 32 ships went through the Northern Sea Route last year, all of them under the auspices of these are the internal waters of Russia. You need a pilot, uh, you need an escort, uh, does the United States at some point decide we'll send an icebreaker through the northern sea route? Don't need an escort, don't need a pilot. Do we do that to exert freedom of navigation? 
You cannot do it with an Aegis cruiser. So what do you need an icebreaker to do if we are serious about freedom of navigation in some of these domains? Uh, discussions that we'll save for later, uh, but it really begins with an open and transparent dialogue with the other Arctic Council nations to talk about security, but do so through the lens of Coast Guards. Um, and it is an appropriate fit for us today. Uh, we gained significant momentum with this first meeting, and oftentimes the, the Arctic Council holds summits every other year. Uh, we decided we need to meet in another six months. Um, clear your calendar, and we're not going to lose momentum on this. And oftentimes, we'll have send the more junior people. Okay, we'll put together courses of action. We show up, we drink coffee, we sign a statement, we all go home. Uh, we are going to be the action officers at the principal level to say it is so important today that we are the ones that are going to be the action officers as we frame our security interest for the Arctic domain. Uh, obviously, we'll bring our subject matters in with us, uh, but that's another area where we want to accelerate the timeline. So going from A to Z, uh, you know, strategy driving budget, uh, I will say this has been a banner year for, for the Coast Guard. The reason I was on the Hill yesterday was to thank members. I want to thank OMB as well. This, this was a historic year for the United States Coast Guard, our lar largest acquisition budget in Coast Guard history. Uh, but I need to think beyond 2016. I need to think about 2026. I think back 42 years ago when I was a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, and these new icebreakers were being built. And we were excited. I said, wow, this is awesome. And I go to the Coast Guard Academy on a regular basis. And I said, well, how many of you want to go to a 40-year-old ship? And they say, well, they want to go. They want to go because they are confident that this nation will invest. And those cadets today are going to be the ice captains of tomorrow because we are indeed an Arctic nation. So we will get there, and I am confident that we will. Uh, but for those of you and out there in shipbuilding at noon today on Fed, Fed Biz Ops, you will see our acquisition notional timeline. You will see our requirements, and we want to have a dialogue. We want to talk icebreakers. Uh, in, in all domains, whether it's restoration, whether it's lease, or whether we build new. So with that, I'd like to open up the floor to any questions. And again, Heather, thank you so much for allowing me to be here, but more importantly, to discuss this very important topic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Admiral. That was fantastic, and we're excited to see noon, uh, see what the uh, timeline looks like. We're running a little over time, so I'd ask uh, if we can just take two questions. I know you have another uh, speaking engagement, and we've got some more discussions to have. So does anyone have, uh, I'll take two from there, and there, if you could please identify yourself and your affiliation, you can direct the question to the Admiral, please. Wait, wait for the microphone. I'm Andrea Shalal with Reuters. Um, I wanted to ask you about what you're posting at noon. Is that a, a draft request for proposals, or is it just a request for information at this point? And what is your sense of the timeline? And can you speak to the sort of urgent calls by both Senator Murkowski and Senator King for whether, you know, to, that there should be funding in the 17 budget? Um, can you confirm that there will be funding? It sounds as if there will be if you're moving ahead with the, an acquisition process. So. So, so the package itself, it's called the Polar Icebreaker Industry Package. So this is really crafted for industry. Uh, to look at what is a notional timeline, I, I can't speak to an appropriation because I can't speak to the 17 budget. 
But obviously that is an ongoing dialogue that we're having as I speak. Um, and so we'll see how 17 plays out. If it plays out to our favor, then we march smartly along that timeline that would include you know, requests for proposals coming out within the next two years, uh, which means you know, there, there may be designs that are already out there. Um, so, so that is really the, the nexus of, of this document, is really to inform industry, full disclosure, full transparency, um, but it really gets to the issue uh, because there's been some skepticism. Can the United States build a heavy icebreaker today, which we haven't built in 40 years? Can we lay up steel several inches thick uh, that, that can stay in operation in the most harsh environments for over 40 years? Uh, and I've met with a number of our shipbuilding executives, and they're convinced that the answer in the United States, when it comes to can we do it, we never say no. Uh, we rise to the challenge, and, and I'm confident that we will rise to the challenge. It is our job here in Washington, D.C. to rise to the bigger challenge of an appropriation to build this program out. Thank you. Uh, Caitlin Antrim, Rule of Law Committee for the Ocean. It's good to see you at another Arctic conference. Caitlin, you, I never miss you. <laughs> um, I have two quick questions. Uh, the Law of the Sea Convention, and I greatly appreciate Senator King's endorsement, um, gives uh, states the right in their exclusive economic zone to set non-discriminatory regulations on uh, passage through the, or operations in the ice. First question, should we be looking at doing just that beyond the 12-mile limit? Second is, while big icebreakers are, are the icebreaker for talking about what we need, Russia's list of ships, I think the most valuable ones, once they get past that big ice-breaking task, are their salvage tugs for rescue, for emergency response. Are we looking at, at that functional, uh, single function or, or multi-function uh, type of icebreaker now, or is that just going to be put off until we get past the renewal, uh, renewal of our core fleet? So uh, to answer your first question, uh, one, I, and you'll find that the other maritime service chiefs all on board with ratification of the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, and even as, you know, sitting with the other Arctic Council nations, uh, there was a point in time where we were the only Arctic Council nation that didn't have an Arctic strategy, so we checked that one off. So now we're the lone Arctic Council nation leading the Arctic Council that has not ratified the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, as, as we look at you know, what is the United States' role in the confl conflicted claims, not just in the Arctic, but in the East and South China Sea as well. A number of ASEAN nations are looking to the United States, uh, but tread softly. Uh, when I met with our counterparts when I was in the Philippines, when I was in Vietnam, they said, wow, we would love to see Coast Guard cutters. Now, I don't need an icebreaker in the East and South China Sea but they would much rather see U.S. with a white ship and a racing stripe on it um, to de-escalate some of the escalating tensions in that part of the world as well. But to really to be an honest broker and a global player uh, in the maritime domain, it's in our best interest if we ratify the Law of the Sea Convention. So now back to a heavy icebreaker. Uh, we heard about, you heard from Senator King, you know, we need infrastructure on the North Slope. We saw some of the challenges that we're seeing in Barrow, Alaska. Uh, we see rising ocean temperatures. What happens to the tundra? Does land sink? Do we see water inundation? Um, so you start looking at a ship as it's your Swiss army knife, if you will. It's a floating command post. 
It can do oil spill response. Um, it can launch unmanned autonomous vehicles into the water, into the air. Uh, it can do all of those things. Um, you reserve space, weight, and power where if you need to exert sovereignty, um, and now it becomes a de facto warship, uh, that might be another capability that we need to look at as well. But we have to really think innovatively uh, out of the life cycle of this ship, thinking 30 to 40 years, you know, what are our equities going to be in the Arctic? And some of these we can't even imagine. When I think back 40 years ago, I was an ensign doing Ocean Station Hotel. Uh, we didn't have weather satellites, we didn't have NOAA buoys, and we were the only source for tracking and detecting tropical cyclones. So we came pretty far in my career, but I need to think 40 years ahead. And with the rate of technological change, we need to think of all of those things. But really, that needs to be manifest in this platform. Can we support the scientific community? Can we do all those other things that that salvage tug can do, which means it needs to be maneuverable as well? Um, and we also need to look at the environment. Uh, we are staunch advocates of the polar code. Uh, as a U.S. Coast Guard, you know, with that advocacy, we probably want to walk the talk as well. If we're going to be operating the platforms in that domain, are we in environmental compliance as well? And obviously, there's been a proliferation of more stringent environmental requirements as well, uh, because quite honestly, none of our ships right now are in compliance. And, and so that is a, uh, it's a lofty goal, but I think it's one we need to shoot for as well. So this is that Swiss Army knife, if you will, Caitlin, that, that can do it all, uh, which is why we walk these requirements through every stakeholder in the Arctic to make sure those requirements can be met, and we don't have to do that as an afterthought. Uh, and the biggest piece is you reserve space, weight, and power, so then you can adapt to changes in technology, which is usually getting less demand on energy and lighter and, and more capable. So, so I'm pretty optimistic with the requirements and with the process that we have in place. Uh, I signed that document last week, uh, so that is smartly moving along. Um, and so again, that has advanced the clock probably about two years where we would be in any typical major acquisition in federal government. Thank you. Admiral, thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Admiral Zika.